Happy Friday. Welcome to the Bulwark podcast of, you know, TGIF, particularly uh, if you were watching the stock market yesterday. Remember, these things go up and they go down. Uh, new job numbers would suggest that the job market stays very, very strong, but everybody hates the economy. But okay, that, that's, that's a subject for a different day because Bill Crystal and I have a lot to talk about today. So first of all, happy Friday. Good morning, Bill. Good morning to you, Charlie. Happy Friday to you. Let's talk about Mark Esper. Yeah. The latest of the Trump administration officials to be speechless during the administration. He said he was almost speechless when he heard uh, Donald Trump's plans to fire missiles in Mexico. But he, but he's now written a book and uh, it's it's kind of juicy. And, and the one that's getting the most attention, of course, is his story about how uh, Trump asked Esper, who was defense secretary at the time, about the possibility of launching missiles into Mexico to destroy the drug labs, wipe out the cartels, and then saying that they could keep it, we could keep it secret, that nobody would know that we did this. So I don't know, Bill, it would have been nice if we would have known this in real time, but your, 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 your thoughts about Mike Esper writing this book and, and also saying very, very directly that uh, Donald Trump is an unprincipled person who, given his self-interest, should not be in the position of public service. Strong words coming from a former Secretary of Defense for that guy. Right. And before that, I think may have been Secretary of the Army for Trump. So he was in mm -hmm. the Trump administration for, for quite a while. I've known Mark Esper a bit casually for a long time. He worked for Fred Thompson as a foreign policy advisor, national security advisor, I think then for leadership, Bill Frisk mm -hmm. maybe. Or, um, so he's you know been around Washington and worked in the defense industry. Good guy, solid. And I thought when he went in to become Secretary of Defense in those last couple of years of the Trump administration, it was probably a good thing for the country that he would, mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't the most flamboyant guy, maybe not, you know, didn't have the stature to fully stand up to Trump, but would probably do so in key things. And I think there's some indication he did. He he and General Milley did work walk across uh, Lafayette Square with Trump, which was unfortunate, but I think they tried to correct that. Um, I saw Esper actually at his request uh, a few months ago. We had mm. just a hamburger out here in Fairfax County in Virginia and um, talked some about this. He said he thought the book would be interesting and people would would uh, learn something from it. Uh, he made clear to me what he's saying publicly, that Donald Trump should not have another term as president. It would have been nice if he had said that before the election, honestly. I mean, maybe it's a little, it would be very unusual for sitting Secretary of Defense to say it about a his boss, the president, but it would have been very dramatic. Think of that, you know, the Friday before the election. Esper just says, look, I'm just giving you my considered opinion, not revealing any classified information or anything that, that I've seen him close up, but I think Donald Trump shouldn't have a second term. Of course, Trump would have fired him, I suppose, right away, but it yeah. could have reinforced the notion among a few voters that it's awfully risky to give this guy a second term. The number of people who didn't step up in that September, October period really is kind of astonishing. People who had left the administration, the HR McMasters of the world. I, I give John Bolton credit actually for doing yeah. so, for saying that he shouldn't have a second term, but a lot of the others didn't say anything and, uh, and, and Esper, but he was, it, as, to be fair, Esper was in office yeah. and he thought he was constraining things that he probably was. I remember when he was fired, I think it was the Monday after the election, mm -hmm. about five, six days after the election by Trump, I was very alarmed. And you recall yeah, I, I spent the next two months being alarmed right. because I thought, you know, I knew that Esper was, you know, was would stand for the rule of law and the Constitution and so forth against Trump. And the fact that he removed Esper with those two months left and brought in total hacks to the Defense Department, I still thought that the 
in institutional structure was strong enough, the military, you know, rule of law in the military was strong enough that Trump couldn't get away ultimately with invoking the Insurrection Act or God knows ordering the military to do certain things. But the, I, I took the firing of Esper to be a very, very dangerous sign. And then when Esper signed the letter of the former defense secretaries on January right. 3rd, I think it was, before January 6th, reminding the military that they have an obligation to the rule of law and they can't let themselves get, be used inappropriately. That was very striking. The fact that they all signed it was, of course, striking. It shows how alarmed serious people who knew what was going on. Obviously, Esper talked to people in the building after he left it and had a ton of associates and colleagues and friends there. And he saw enough to sign that letter, which was pretty unusual and, and startling. So um, this book, uh, I, let's see what other details we get about Trump being totally irresponsible. But again, it just confirms, I mean, every serious person, including people who went much further than you or I would have uh, and would have endorsed and accommodating Trump and, and trying to make it work, nonetheless, just really felt fundamentally this guy could not have a second term, which is not, of course, what all the elected Republican officials say even to this day, right? Even to this day. And, you know, as the Republican Party is poised to, you know, try this all over again, put Trump back into office, when you run through the list of people who work closely with him in, in critical positions who are now saying this was terrible. He was a maniac. He was dangerous. He, he is not fit for office. You know, you just run through all of the officials who've broken with him. Now, you know, we talk about whether Esper should have spoken out. Um, you know, you probably would have would have been fired. And, and it might not have made a difference. Given the state of our politics, it might not make a difference. And this might not make a difference. And, and that's part of the problem. I had, again, two major takeaways from this. Num number one, how sort of unthinkable it is to restore, knowing what we know now, knowing how alarmed people were about his conduct, the possibility of putting him back in the Oval Office, giving him the nuclear codes, making him commander in chief, putting him in charge of the Department of Justice again, is mind-blowing. I mean, because there's no illusions about who he's going to do. And number two, you know that in a second Trump term, prospectively, you won't have guys like Mark Esper in his Secretary of Defense. I mean, if, you know, now Trump may have figured out, you know, that, that he, he can't have people like Esper in those positions, that he has to have the absolute loyalists, you know, the flunkies there. I mean, just imagine the kind of personnel you would get in a Trump 2.0. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I guess my two footnotes to what you said are, A, I'm very curious to see what he says about Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. I, I think one of the stories I read just alluded to Esper has a low opinion of Meadows, but I think the degree to which Meadows was right at the center of all the conspiracies, the plans, the plots that led up to January 6th. We've seen that, of course, from some of the text messages and the other reporting. And of course, Meadows was cheek by jowl with Trump. So again, it puts Trump and Meadows at the center of everything, the plotting to use parts of the federal government to overturn the election, the plotting with the state legislature to, to get state legislatures to overturn it, the rabble-rousing of the crowd. I'm curious to see if Esper has much more to say about Meadows than has been reported so far in the book. The other point I would say is, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, of course, about Trump being president again. It's also amazing that people are willing to sort of follow his advice about anything, right? And and, and respect him and go to Mar-a-Lago and Republican primary voters watch who he endorses. And then he goes, Vance goes up 20 points in the polls. I mean, you do wonders. I mean, because of course, the same reasons that you wouldn't want him as president for a second term sort of disqualify him from being a good judge of 
who who else should be serving in high positions in the government, right? You'd think, you'd think he'd be just. He, and that's, I guess, you know, what one gets so much in the middle of it, and then we have the debates. Was Trump really that powerful? And maybe there's a little bit of splits going on now, and he only moved Vance up to thirty two percent, not to fifty five percent, and all this stuff. Yeah. But what's most amazing? You got to step back and see the forest not for the trees. What's most amazing is the guy after everything, after, after everything, everything yeah. including January sixth, is the most powerful Republican in the country may not be super, super powerful. He's only very powerful, but, and, and he's moving votes and he's moving money and his endorsement's the single best one to have. And he's most likely going to run for president and most likely be the nominee. I just, when you step back and think about that for a minute, it's, it's terrible, really. It's just terrible. Yeah. And I think it was, it was Maggie Haberman who tweeted that a lot of people are in denial about this, that they, they just can't really get their heads around it. Well, I think that they, you know, they need to start doing that. Okay. Now, speaking of former cabinet members, we have the Mark Esper book. We also have something happening um, in real time while you and I are speaking. You have this press release from Pompeo, who is holding a briefing this morning on what he calls a significant national security concern regarding Dr. Oz's close ties to the Turkish government. Now, Pompeo is supporting Dave McCormick as opposed to Dr. Oz, but as Maggie Haberman from the Times tweets out this morning, it's a significant escalation ahead of Trump coming to campaign for Oz later today. So you are seeing these weird rivalries in Trump world. So what, what, do you, what do you make of what Pompeo is doing here? Yeah, I don't think I don't like Dr. Oz and I wouldn't vote for him, but I don't think if he's a senator, it's a national security problem, honestly, any more than it's really not more of a problem than having all these pro-Russian senators and a pro-Russian president, Donald Trump, dealing with Putin and stuff. So why why is Mike Pompeo doing this? So I think Pompeo, DeSantis, that if I can call it that chunk of the party, which is, you know, has worked for Trump or with Trump, which is pretty Trumpy, but they have their own ambitions. Uh, if you want to put it in a nicer way, they think you really do need to move beyond Trump. Mm -hmm. They are moving a little more aggressively than they have in the past, I'd say, to try to uh, carve out their own path and, and leave without criticizing Trump directly, probably, you know, leave the sense that Trump's a little out of it, a little bit making some rash decisions. And I mean, DeSantis is people are telling everyone this in the donor community. I talked with someone yesterday, just randomly, who you know had heard about this from other people. The extent to which the DeSantis Pompeo world sort of wants to get beyond Trump, partly right. for personal ambition, partly for you know what other reasons, I suppose. Uh, yeah, that is striking, and it does mean I think one or two of them are going to run against Trump, as well as the Christies and the Hogans and others. And you know, we'll see if there maybe the Republican primary electorate still likes Trump and is moved when he endorses someone, but isn't quite ready to put him back in the Oval Office. Maybe, I don't think Pompeo is going to be a very strong candidate, honestly, but maybe this is all a kind of DeSantis, you know, ultimately becomes the, the rallying to DeSantis of the Trump adjacent, but not quite super loyal Trump types. Well, see, this is what happened, of course, uh, as we remember, because we still have PTSD from it in 2015 and 2016, there was not a coalescing around one non-Trump candidate until it was way too late. And then unfortunately, it was the deeply deplorable Ted Cruz. But if there was a coalescing around DeSantis, you could sort of see that. But so, you know, but guys like Mike Pompeo, and I, and I don't know him, you know, watching him, he's been, you know, you know, slavishly loyal to, uh, to Donald Trump. He's got to know that he's, you know, this is a shots fired moment, that the day that Trump is coming into Pennsylvania to campaign for Dr. Oz, that Mike Pompeo, 
is pointing out his Turkish ties. And apparently there was some picture of Dr. Oz a few years ago voting in a Turkish presidential election. I mean, <laughs> a weird twist. I'm, I'm not talking about the merits of it. I, I just, I, I think it's interesting. Also, I read this morning that the super PAC or the political action committee that had supported Josh Mandel in his failed attempt to win the deplorable vote against J.D. Vance is now turning its attention to attacking Dr. Oz. So I, there, there are these interesting divisions out there. Everybody's MAGA. Everybody, you know, loves Trump, but but they're they're sort of, you know, fighting with one another. Yeah, I mean, I'd make two points. I think that's really right. It is worth following as we go forward. I do think McCormick has become the kind of standard bearer in the Pennsylvania primary for the kind of the donors, the people like Pompeo, people who know him, and I know him some, who think correctly that he was a respectable, centrist, conservative Republican, ran a massive hedge fund. He's on tape after January 6th saying this was horrible. And then he yeah. wants to work with Joe Biden because we need to have some bipartisanship back at all this. Then he totally prostitutes himself, you know, when he decides to run for the Senate in Pennsylvania and becomes a Trumpy person and hires Stephen Miller and stuff. And all of his friends, if you talk to them, say, oh, well, of course, he doesn't agree with any of that. Just get what you got to do. So McCormick's become sort of the stand-in for can you do a sort of DeSantis-Pompeo alternative to the wacky candidate, Dr. Oz, whom Trump supports. It'll be interesting to see, I guess, just as a kind of analytical matter, which one wins, if either wins. I don't rule out the true MAGA candidate, Lynn Barnett, who has one-tenth, one-hundredth probably of the money spent by the other two, Oz and McCormick, and it seems to be already at 18% just on true grassroots MAGA support. It'd be kind of funny if she beat the both, but it is sort of interesting. I mean, even the best cases, you end up with people who are pretty shamefully acquiescent to, to Trump and, and willing to embrace a lot of his advisors and his themes and his demagoguery, so it's not great. But I suppose it's better to have some of this fractioning, honestly, honestly than not. Yeah, I, I suppose. That, and by the way, speaking of Stephen Miller, who is supporting the non-super Trumpy candidate, which is kind of weird here, in this Esper book, he talks about uh, some of the things that Stephen Miller was suggesting when he was in the White House, including sending uh, a quarter million troops to handle the quote-unquote caravans at the southern border. I don't, Esper says, I, I think maybe he was joking, but you know, he had to say, I, I don't actually think that we should uh, you know, send a quarter of a million troops. And Stephen Miller is the kind of guy that should have just, you know, faded back into pariah status after the Trump years. But of course, uh, he's still around and, uh, and and he would come back. But can I just say a word on that? Yeah, sure, biggest, sure. That's a very big story that's underreported. You've talked about it before, yeah. but none of them is in pariah status. None of them has paid a price, right? None. They're all right. been hired by campaigns to try to show that the Trump loyalty. These guys are making so much money and are respectable and are giving speeches. And of course, the same is true of all the Fox News people. I had an interesting argument, uh, discussion yesterday at a little party, really, in Washington, a book party. And there's a guy, there's a nice guy we know, I won't say who he was, it was just a conversation, but a nice guy we know him, and a pretty anti-Trump kind of conservative. And it was going on about, boy, Tucker's really lost. Can you believe what he's saying now? And this is such a, it's going to blow himself up. And I thought, what what are we talking about here? Tucker Carlson is one of the most powerful yeah. media figures, most one of those powerful conservatives, one of the most powerful political figures, I would say, in America today. He's not suffering at all. He may or may not end up, you know, succeeding in his sort of plan, as it were, to dominate the Republican Party and fundamentally change American conservatism. But th this guy, who's not at Tucker's level in terms of providence or money or or visibility, you know, he's doing the wish casting. 
these guys are blowing themselves up and we're going to go back to somewhere between kind of Pompeo and McCormick on the right and Chris Christie in the center and have something resembling a normal Republican Party. There's so much wishful thinking and failure to come to grips with the world we're actually living in. It really strikes me. Three or four years ago, that would have been a plausible thing to argue yeah. that that they would gone too far. But uh, but now I think it's it's just it is pure denialism because, I mean, look at the, you know, J.D. Vance, uh, you know, I mean, how many people thought that J.D. Vance was going to blow himself up by, you know, his cartoonish bigotry and, right. you know, jumping into every single uh, culture war saying he didn't care what happened with Ukraine, embracing the replacement theory. I mean, he was a joke. And yet, bottom line, it worked. He yeah. figured out what 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 did the Republican electorate want? What would they tolerate? He gave it to them good and hard, and it worked. And you you think about then, you know, who are the powers? And I think you tweeted about this. Who are the powers right now in the Republican Party? It's Peter Thiel. It's Donald Trump. And it's Tucker Carlson. I mean, their sort of, you know, white nationalist, isolationist agenda is what is actually being embraced by the Republican primary voting base. Yeah, I mean, the good news is there's some fracturing on the Trump right. It's right. kind of a chaotic group, and they'll fight each other some. The bad news is the most co- cohesive group within the Trump right now, I think, is the most fervent, but also not unintelligent and pretty disciplined, I'm going to almost call them proto-fascists, I don't know what to call them, but real believers, real pe- people who really despise democracy, who really believe in a kind of authoritarian policies and solutions. Um, and that does include Teal and Tucker, Trump himself to some degree, but really more J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley. And those people, you could argue if Trump fades some, it's better. They'll be more fracturing. Those people mm. will have to fight against Pompeo and against Christie and against a million other people and against Abbott. And it becomes more chaotic. On the other hand, those people have a real vision and a real sense of where they want to go more than Trump, honestly. Right. It was, in that respect, a much more sort of populist demagogue. And the, some eclipsing of Trump is good, but on the other hand, if the populist demagogue is replaced by disciplined authoritarians, that's not great. Who are competent. Uh, yes. Yeah, no, yes. I, I, exactly. And I think this is something that we've been talking about, is the fact that this, this kind of Trumpism is going to survive Donald Trump potentially by decades. And also, we're seeing this, this radicalization of the base and, and of elected officials as well on a number of issues, you know, guns, democracy, but also on abortion. And I want to talk about that in light of everything that's happened this week right after this. Do you hate hearing ads? If so, I've got a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. Okay, we are back with Bill Crystal. Speaking of denial, I don't think people have really fully gotten their heads around the fact that we had this massive really unprecedented leak from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court suggesting that they are about to do something that 
not that long ago was unthinkable, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, root and branch, including all of the other related cases, including uh, Casey. So, Bill Crystal, give me your sense of what you think is going on inside the court, how, you know, how this might play out, because this was a draft opinion. People need to remember that drafts can change and the decision is not final until it's released. And justices have changed their votes during the process. So, we, you know, all of that on the table. But I think it's a fair bet that Roe is probably on the way out. Or what do you think? What is your take? You know, I think it probably is. But I think people are being a little too certain that it is. I mean, I've asked people who clerked at the court and, and others who follow it very closely. Who assigned the opinion to Alito? Mm-hmm. So the way it works is they have a conference. And, you know, they the, the votes shake out, at least as a preliminary matter, in a certain way. And the chief justice, uh, if he's in the majority, assigns the opinion. Otherwise, the most senior justice assigns it to that the majority, what, what will become the majority opinion, presumably. So if it's a simple case and it's not, you know, it's a seven-digit vote and the chief justice is in the seven and he assigns the opinion that among the two dissenters, the more senior one says, you should write this or I'll write it. And that's that. And it gets circulated, it gets tweaked, and that's, that's kind of the model. This is a little more complicated. Chief Justice Roberts seems to want to uphold the Mississippi law. So the actual holding, of which is the actual case, right. is Six the Mississippi three. law, should the Mississippi law be upheld or not, the 15 weeks, et cetera. Uh, that's the 6-3 vote, I guess, which yeah. with Roberts in the majority. So what I asked a friend of mine is, well, does Roberts then assign the draft opinion if he's in the majority or if it's clear in the conference that there are five votes to overturn Roe and Roberts isn't there, does he say, well, I, I can't really assign this because I'm not you know, on board with that part of it. Huh. And uh, Justice Thomas, you're the ranking, uh, the more senior justice in that group, you assign it. And apparently it's sort of ambiguous. There's no kind of hard and fast rules, I'm told, about exactly how that works. Probably as a courtesy or as a practice. Just Roberts shouldn't assign an opinion that he's not going to be part of. So that might have been Thomas, who then gives it to Alito, which I think is at least a little surprising. Thomas has been a very fierce opponent of Roe and Casey. One of his first big dissents was in Casey in 92. He'd been on the court just for a year then. And it's funny that he would give it to Alito, but whatever. With all the, but, but Roberts might have said, look, you try. You guys try to get five votes for this. I'm withholding my, for now at least, and let's see. And I, I guess I'm a little less certain that Kavanaugh and Barrett are fully on board that. The fact that they circulate the draft and that Roberts, in a sense, authorized Alito to write such a draft, it's not clear from anything we've seen that, that that thing has people signing on. And I think there are parts of it that people will have questions about. So I think it's a little less of a done deal than people think, though I tend to agree that it looks like Rose going down. And um, But the Alito opinion is odd because I mean, you've been involved in this issue a long time, Charlie, and I have yeah. a little bit too. It's not written in a way to persuade anyone who's on the fence. You know, it's like right. this opinion is horrible. It's been horrible for 50 years. And I agree it was a bad opinion and wrongly decided at the time. And so we're overturning it, you know, and basically that's what it is. There's not a whole lot of argument about yeah. And you think you might address sort of, well, 50 years is a long time and that there's a real, you know, so we have to sort of explain why it's so important to constitutional law and to the country to to in a sense redress this this uh, injustice or this bad opinion. I don't know, it just feels to me like it's in a funny way not intended to persuade. If I were you know, a pro-life candidate running this year, I'd look at that opinion and think, boy, this isn't giving me a lot of help in making the case for why this is the right thing to do, why the effects of it will be you know, reasonable and good for the body politic ultimately. So I, I, I actually find the whole thing a little odd, but I think 
basically, as you wrote in the newsletter this morning, I mean, an awful lot of Republicans who've gotten away with just saying I'm pro-life and, and increasingly in, a, in an increasingly radical way in the last few years, I'm totally pro-life, no exceptions. Now we're going to have to put up or shut up. And I, I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen in some of these states when the Republican Party is nominally for full abortion bans with no exceptions. That is not where the voters are in a state like Texas or Florida. Uh, no, not even there. No, not even in conservative. No, I want to get to that in, in just a moment. But but let's go back to this, this opinion, because I think you tweeted out about, you know, at least one aspect that I'm guessing will change as they revise this. That Alito summoned the ghost of Sir Matthew Hale. (laughs) And people are going, okay, this guy that you are citing, you know, is this expert actually hanged the witches? To say that this is not the guy you actually want to be, in your opinion, is putting it mildly. I I don't know whether there's a safe bet or if there's any safe bets at all, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if references to Sir Matthew Hale were taken out in the final drafting. You know, a little awkward. Yeah, a little awkward. So in general, I think we could see more of a splintering of opinions. The MFI may come together on a few core parts of an opinion over Rolling Row, but the six may come together on a few core parts of an opinion sustaining Mississippi law. But even the most minimal outcome certainly gives a green light or a yellow light to an awful lot of states who move much further on Roe than they have so far. And of course, the states aren't going to listen to the details of the court, so they're just going to have they're going to go right ahead, some of them, and just say, okay, absolute ban and so forth. In Louisiana. And then that will get litigated. Sometimes if people have this silly view, some of the rhetoric on this is, this will lance the boil. We'll get it back to the states. It's ridiculous. It's distorted our constitutional law and our politics for 50 years, which I agree with. And let's get it back to the states. It'll settle down. It's not going to settle down much. There are going to be fierce arguments. There are going to be lawsuits of all kinds, you know, exactly interpreting whatever decision the court comes up with here. What are, what are there no restraints on what the states can do it? Can they stop someone from going across state lines to get an abortion? Of course, there are going to be federal attempts by both pro-life and pro-choice forces to embody this in federal law. And even though you and I might like a kind of abstract argument about how it should be left to the states, both sides by now have done enough to try to pass federal legislation on abortion, you know, parental consent, 20-week limits and so forth on the pro-life side, the upholding row, codifying row, as they say, on the pro-choice side that no one has much of a principal stand anymore that the federal government should just stay out of it. So a degree to which this is going to royal American politics, not just for a few months, I think, but for the next couple of years. And, and I think that gets pretty unpredictable how that works out. I mean, oh, I we, we haven't really tested, the way I put it to something, we haven't tested the proposition of overturning a 50-year-old right, whatever you think of that right, and however badly it was you know, originally justified what that does to the political system. We just don't have much of a case study of this, you know? So, Look, historical analogies are always a little bit dangerous and always slightly misleading. But I have to say that listening to some of the the arguments about, you know, people saying, well, now it will be resolved by the states, therefore it will be, you know, we'll lower the temperature. Uh, they sound an awful lot like they're channeling Stephen Douglas. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates where they're talking about the future of slavery and people remember, the, you know, Stephen Douglas, who was was a racist and you know, was you know, willing to look, you know, support, uh, you know, aspects of, of slavery. His whole big thing was, you know, it should be up to the popular vote in the various states. And right. that did not solve the problem. Didn't even it come close to it. Didn't calm the waters, right? No. So at some point, I'll have a longer discussion of of all of this. I, I think, you know, there, there's there's a couple of things that are troubling about the Alito decision. Uh, number one is, of course, what you mentioned, overturning a settled precedent after 50 years. There is a certain, you know, it is radical to upend um, precedent like that. 
which m- many of the conservative justices have acknowledged in different contexts. So that's number one. Number two is the fact that he does uh, cast real doubt on um, the legal status of the right to privacy. And there are a lot of cases that assume or recognize uh, an unenumerated implicit right to be left alone um, in in the Constitution. And, and now he, he's obviously a little defensive about that because he goes through, Alito goes through all of the cases that might be, you know, put in some doubt, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, uh, the loving decision, et cetera, and said, no, you know, the, the, they are not affected because abortion is unique. It involves the taking of human life. But I do think uh, it raises questions that if you essentially say there is no right of privacy, how, you know, it's, it feels like this sort of Jenga tower. Um, what else might fall? What what other things might be implicated? And I think this has been one of the tragedies. And I actually believe it or not, back in the 90s, I wrote a book about this. I think that conservatives should have embraced the right to be let alone. I, I think that there's something very conservative about the right of privacy, but it got it all tied up and wrapped around the axle of abortion. And so now for decades, conservatives have regarded the right of privacy um, with suspicion. Um, And I don't necessarily think that's gonna change, but I would certainly argue that um, the the right of privacy is deeply ingrained in American uh, history and and traditions. And this is something that I think the the right has been reluctant to acknowledge because of the role that it played in in Roe versus Wade. No, I think it's one way, in many ways, in which Roe did distort our our thinking, our jurisprudence, our political debate, but... um, and then the reaction to Roe did as well. You know, I, I what studied this stuff ages and ages ago, but there's a decision from the 1920s, I think it's called Pierce, where the court struck down a law somewhere from the Midwest banning, basic, requiring the parents to send their children to public schools. Yeah. Uh, and they said, no, 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 people, parents have some basic rights and they can choose to, it's basically an attack on the parochial schools, on the Catholics. Mm-hmm. And uh, parents have a basic right to choose uh, about their kids' education. Um, and it's kind of a conservative point of view, you might say. Uh, and but there's not it's not enumerated in the Constitution, obviously. It's very hard to see where that exactly comes from. It comes from a general sense that we're a free country and part of being a free society is while there can be all kinds of regulations on all kinds of things for your health and for your well-being and that people can tax you for the common good and so forth. At some point, there can't be this kind of you know requirement that you can't choose the kind of education your kids and maybe you could of course even there would be some limitations that would be acceptable you have to make sure your kid gets educated that seems to be the law in almost all states that they can pass yeah. basic tests and math and reading and so forth but you can't say that you know you can't have a religious education if you don't want one that's what the law basically said well but again that's not literally based i don't think on anything in the in the constitution or maybe you could derive it from the first amendment but that's a bit of a derivation so again i, I agree with you very much instead of having a sort of grown-up discussion of what unenumerated rights one does want the court to at least look for what the guidance would be on how to think about them and so forth. Uh, we've had a very kind of, uh, uh, you know, legalistic almost, but also simple-minded kind of discussion on both sides. And I've got to say Alito's opinion, draft opinion, does not move much beyond that. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to help our discourse on this topic. No, I don't think so. So well, on the on this practical level, and I, we mentioned this earlier in my newsletter today, I did write about the radicalization of the right on this issue. I mean, really up until five minutes ago, Republicans understood that if you were going to restrict abortion, you had to have exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. You know, just from a strictly political point of view, 
only 16% of Texans say that abortion should be illegal in the cases of rape and incest. You know, public opinion is overwhelming on this particular issue. And again, until recently, this was the position. Ronald Reagan articulated this, that we had to have exceptions for rape and, and incest. I was struck as I was doing some reading about this, as recently as 2019, just three years ago, Donald Trump himself felt that it was necessary to reaffirm his support for the exceptions. He says, as most people know, I am strongly pro-life with the three exceptions, rape, incest, and protecting the life of the mother, the same position taken by Ronald Reagan. And now they move past that. I, mean, I think I saw this morning that Trump has been sort of reticent. You right. think he might be taking credit for this. And I think conservatives say, oh, this guarantees Trump's success going forward because conservatives will have to be so grateful to him for this. But Trump right. himself, who does have a certain kind of lizard brain, cleverness mm -hmm. about these issues, has been very careful hasn't talked about it much. I think he's quoted somewhere saying, well, this is a draft opinion. I don't want to talk about it until we know exactly what's happening. He's a little nervous about sort of him being labeled the person who has allowed full bans on abortion in many states. I don't think he thinks that's where he wants to be as a political figure. I, I, I hate to say this, but he, he gets that. Yeah. He understands that the bus that the dog just caught is going to be a big problem. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. He's he's shrewder in that way than the ideologues because he is such a demagogue that he just he kind of has a feel for where public opinion is and he has a feel for how you could work people up. But also then when it comes to the crunch, I mean, God knows what his own personal private life incidentally is on this yeah. issue, you know. So, but mm -hmm. you know, so he has a feel for when it comes to the crunch. You don't actually perhaps want to start leading to the backlash that that could happen. And again, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. I mean, one of the things that changed dramatically this week is that up until now, if you were a pro-life Republican, you know, you were able to finesse this issue because you were firing blanks. You could put out a press release saying that, you know, you were the strongest pro-life person with no exceptions and everything because it was all performative. It was all theoretical. It was never going to happen. Now, suddenly you wake up and you go, whoa, now you're firing real bullets. These laws are going to go into effect and that's going to be on the ballot. And it's like, ooh, be careful what you wish for. But how much, Charlie, do you think the Democrats will misplay this and, you know, yeah, force it away their candidates to take a kind of nine-month right to abortion position instead of a more mute, complicated, look, I understand restrictions in the right. third trimester, maybe in the second even, but we've got to preserve the basic right, which is, I think, the popular position that Democrats could get to, pro-choice politicians could get to, and what some of them have argued over the years, and I think believe probably. But I'm struck just reading a little bit about it here that yep. the official pro-choice, pro-abortion groups in the Democratic Party are going to try to insist that they they basically be for you know, any abortion at any time. And I think this bill that Schumer's bringing up to the floor next week yep. basically implies that. It, it has some language, you know, very such a vague exception for <sighs> health, including mental health of the mother, that it basically is a nine-month abortion uh, permission. And uh, yeah, I mean, why should, I mean, what is wrong with those Democratic, you know, I mean, you bring up a bill that's already been defeated, that doesn't have 50 votes. Terrible. What, what kind of symbolic vote is that? I mean, it, it's like, instead of bringing up something that you could get Collins and Murkowski on, something that would start to divide Republicans, something that would cause, you know, some conservatives around the country to say, well, it doesn't seem so unreasonable, you know, that uh, for guarantee abortion in the first 14, 15 weeks, 18 weeks, maybe, or even until viability, but then, you know, states can regulate it. You can imagine many ways to, to write this legislation. I haven't really thought it through, but don't you think they're, they're not? Oh, totally. <laughs> so I, this morning I'm, I'm reading that uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, done in Texas is, 
you know, saying essentially that there should be no legal restrictions on abortion at all. Tim Ryan, who's going to be running against J.D. Vance, you know, is taking the same position. I mean, J.D. Vance is very vulnerable on this. I mean, yes. last year he said he opposed exceptions for women to have been the victims of rape or incest. He, he actually described those pregnancies as inconvenient, but insisted the two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, in the before times, somebody who describes, you know, somebody who had been raped and, and impregnated to say that it's inconvenient. I mean, that would be a career ender, but I, I don't know. I get all sorts of blowback when we talk about late term abortion. People saying, Charlie, why are you even talking about it? Because there are very, very few late term abortions. It never happens. It's, it's, it's a red herring to which my response would be, OK, then fine. Don't defend them. Then just say we support the right to have an abortion earlier. But we agree with you that there comes a point at which it's too close to infanticide. If it is rare, then just don't go there. Don't die on that hill. You know, in retrospect, the one guy who kind of got this right was Bill Clinton when yeah. he said, you know, abortion should be safe. You know, it was a safe, legal and rare or something. Right. Or safe, legal, rare. But the rare was important. But I don't sense that. And I think that you're seeing this, you know, once again, the extremes pushing it. So, you know, we're talking about only a very small percentage of voters who think that there should be no exception for rape or incest. There's also a really vanishingly small number of voters who think that there should be no restrictions whatsoever up until the moment of birth. And so rather than, you know, paint the Republican position as extreme, the Democrats are going to take a position which will allow the Republicans to paint them as extreme. So. Right, and I mean, you could add, of course, to ninety-two percent, uh, I think, of abortions are in the first uh, yes. fifteen weeks. That's the most overwhelming, and, and some chunk of the remaining are genuine health emergencies for either the mother or a, right. a not viable fetus. So, I mean, uh, there aren't that many, but fine. So, but uh, one can then say uh, people have plenty of time if it's 50, let's say twenty weeks uh, or whatever, you know, to, to discover if they're pregnant, obviously to think about it, to consult with people, uh, to escape a, an abusive relationship, if that's what has to happen, uh, and, and then make the decision. And so, and I think, you know, obviously have the health of the mother and the unviability of the fetus, perhaps an exception that even all to the end. So, and I think a lot of it is tone too. I was talking with someone about this yesterday and who was really outraged. And, and I, I got the impression from this younger person that the outrage about the court was less about the details of what would happen. And this person lives in a state where they'll probably, you know, abortion rights will be, will be maintained, but more the kind of cavalier way in which a whole bunch of older people, almost all men are just kind of changing this situation, which the country has lived with for a long time, which people have mm -hmm. kind of internalized and within which the number of abortions has been cut in half, I think, in the last 30 years or so. So it's not as if abortion is out of control and there are more and more of them, right? That's not, again, that's not to say that maybe there isn't a case for cutting it back more or even for ultimately hoping mm -hmm. to getting rid of Roe v. Wade. But the rhetoric surrounding it, I think, is very distasteful to a lot of people. And the idea that th this is what's going to now dominate uh, state governor governor's races and state legislative races for the next, not just this year, but maybe the next two or three or four cycles. Well, well, we debating other yeah. issues. I just think people are very put off by that. But the Democrats could put people off themselves enough that they don't actually benefit from what would otherwise be a Republican court taking a very big step that is not in accord right now with public opinion. I mean, that should be a good issue, honestly, for Democrats, you know? It should absolutely be. In fact, I saw one 
poll that would suggest that the uh, majority of voters in some of the states like Texas and Florida that have passed these laws have no idea these things are happening. People have kind of tuned it out because of the right. assumptions always been it would never happen. Okay, so speaking of the impact, I mean, here in Wisconsin, I mean, this completely changes our political environment, at least for now, because it, it becomes a binary choice. We have a law on the book since the 1840s, believe it or not, that makes abortion illegal. For all of these years, for reasons that we don't need to go into, Democrats never thought to actually repeal that law. So that law goes into effect if Roe versus Wade is overturned and a Republican governor and attorney general are elected, the legislature will be dominated by Republicans. The only thing that will stand between the state and, you know, having this 1840s restriction will be the governor's race. And if you would have asked me, you know, a week ago, what does it look like? I'd say that the incumbent Democrat, Tony Evers, is a dead man walking. He's very uninspiring, uh, very non-charismatic, very, very vulnerable in a year that's going to be Republican. But now this election becomes, again, a, a binary choice. It's like if, if, if a Rebecca Clayfish becomes governor and there is a Republican attorney general, uh, there will be no abortions legal in Wisconsin. I mean, just like that, it won't require any legislative action. It will just happen. That's pretty I mean, remarkable. That, that kind of changes things, right? Yeah, I think the situation is the same in places like Michigan. Yeah, that is kind of remarkable. I also would, I noticed, speaking about Wisconsin, that Sarah Godlewski, I think that's her name, the yes. uh, treasurer, state treasurer, uh, did an ad very quickly uh, saying she's committed to defending reproductive rights. She's running for the Senate. Right. And it made me think that she's the moderate, one of the moderates in that race, very much more yes. moderate than Mandela Barnes, who's the front runner, the lieutenant governor for the Senate nomination. I wonder if this is an issue from the Democratic point of view, where if they could just avoid going too far, though, in that, you know, nine months uh, direction, it, it allows a re relatively moderate Democrat on fiscal policy, on foreign policy, and et cetera, to show that he or she is is in solidarity, so to speak, with the the base of the party on this pretty fundamental issue to the base. And I, it might allow the Democrats to paper over in a way more effectively some of the splits in in their party. So we'll see. I, mean, I was just struck that she did this. Yeah. No, it was, it was. And she's out there with the first ad. And uh, uh, yeah, I, th I think the assumption has been that uh, Mandela Barnes, who is uh, far to the left, was uh, the prohibitive front run. That may not be the case. There have been some polls showing that that is tightening. But this is the kind of issue, though, that that answers the question about whether or not Democrats will be motivated to turn out and vote in places like Milwaukee and Dane County and whether or not Democrats can continue to make uh, inroads into the suburbs. This one issue uh, changes the stakes. But the question is whether or not a Democrat would be allowed to say, yes, we ought to make sure that we you know, protect a right to choose in the first trimester, but certainly not the third trimester. I wonder whether that would be considered a heresy, just like now, apparently, if you support the other exceptions, you're considered a heretic among Republicans. You know, one of the things that's happening now, though, is the complete extinction of pro-choice Republicans and pro-life Democrats. And by the end of this year, there might not be any of them left. Which is extraordinary. Not healthy, again, to have the entire political system polarized on this issue and the parties polarized. So it's very hard to then have bipartisan coalitions, which you used to have for rather moderate positions like, okay, abortion is legal post Roe v. Wade, but let's not have federal funding for abortion. That was sustained for, has been sustained for 50 years, always with some Democratic votes at the beginning with a ton of Democratic votes as, as a way of kind of respecting 
those people who have deep moral objections to abortion, their tax dollars shouldn't go to it. And people are just going to have to use private funds or state funds if the state chooses to do it to, to pay, to get help in paying for an abortion. So you're right. All the sort of normal accommodations that are pluralistic, diverse society become much harder. And, and, but I think the politics of this are unpredictable. I, I tend to think I Democrats do. are benefited as you argued actually quite convincingly mm-hmm. this morning, I think in, in the newsletter, but, but they could also, overreach and there are kind of funny bounces that could happen. And, but I think it's a real wild card. I've never been on the side that we've all debated this over the last two, three, four months, seeing this coming. Is this such a big issue? And I think the conventional wisdom is, oh no, at the end of the day, voters don't vote on it. And it's kind of a niche thing and everyone already knows what they think. But I, I don't agree with that. I think it's a big enough bowling ball coming down the center of, uh, of the avenue here that it could really disrupt an awful lot of things. I completely agree with you on that. Bill Crystal. thank you so much for joining us on our weekend podcast. My pleasure, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again. <laughs>